Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Morlean, we serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The purpose of this program is to help you be at home in your hymnal, in the divine service in church or one of the prayer offices as well, or using your hymnal for personal or family devotions at home to be at home in your hymnal with the rhythm and flow of worship. God speaks, we hear we listen, we believe, we respond. Our uh, episodes recently have been working our way through Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book. That's page 151 and following. And we are all the way to the readings of the church. And if you have your hymnals in front of you, that's page 156 and 157, where we have the outline of where the readings fit into the divine service, the uh, the high point or the culmination of the uh, service of the word. And we have an earlier program, Pastor Morundi, when he was here and I did a program, uh, oh boy, maybe 10 episodes ago or so. I'll have to check out and uh, find out exactly which one that is, where we talked about the difference between the one-year series and the three-year series of readings the uh, pros and the cons of each one. And here at Good Shepherd, we use the one-year series of readings, hence the program that we also put out, our sister program, Proclaiming the One, where we look at those readings each week. But there are two options, two variables in that, and I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. Pastor Morundi had a a great insight because before he came to Good Shepherd, he spent many years in the three-year series, I grew up with the one-year series, then with my early years as lay minister and pastor, three-year series, and then came back to the one-year series at Good Shepherd. Uh, Pastor Moline, just for fun, what did you use in your uh, many years up in North Dakota? Well, uh, for the first six years, we used the three-year lectionary, and then uh, in uh, 2017, uh, we switched to the one-year lectionary. Uh, as a part of looking back at uh, the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation. It gave us the opportunity to go back to Luther's sermons because he preached on the one-year lectionary and so uh, kind of brought some of those into our preaching and teaching for the year and then stayed in the one-year lectionary and now even here in the one-year lectionary. Okay. The, you know, there there's about 90% of the time when I'm really, really happy that we use the one-year series, one-year readings here at Good Shepherd. But every once in a while, you know, I kind of long for the, the more variety, the more Bible, the more options, the more opportunities. And uh, I keep coming back to um, I would rather have our people be um, – firmly grounded, repetition is the mother of all learning, firmly grounded in certain key parts of Scripture than have them a mile wide and an inch deep. And I, I know you can have a lively competition and a lively discussion on this. There is no right or wrong, but uh, this is this is a topic that is pretty much always before us yep. in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And yep. the whole point that we want to talk about here is the importance of the Word, the importance of God's Word as a uh, central figure of how God speaks to us. Now, the liturgy, each of these liturgical parts that are going back and forth, these are all either God's Word or based on God's Word. But here we have the actual Word of God being read 
in the worship services. And there's a pattern, there's a rhythm and flow here, too. And, and even I have a friend in North Dakota uh, who puts yeah, you, it you this have, way. Just one? You have just one friend in North Dakota? Well, I have just one period, right? <laughs> no. uh, one of my friends who lives in North Dakota says the difference between the three-year and the one-year is this. The three-year focuses on trying to get as much of the four different Gospels read as possible so that there's a lot of hearing variety. The one-year lectionary picks the 52 most important parts of the Gospels and focuses specifically on those each year. And so that's kind of the variety that you have. Do we want to get... uh, a lot of variety, but not as much uh, specific, or do we want to focus on the 52 most specific things? And, and you're free to do either one, um, but, you know, one's obviously better than the other, but we won't get into that. <laughs> the, uh, the the comment that Pastor Russert has made uh, many times, and, and he's had, you know, had lots of experience in both the three-year and the one-year, is uh, from here, his experience and uh, working now back with the one-year series again here at Good Shepherd is that there is an intentional focus on the person and work of Christ each week in the one-year series. And sometimes, because of the variety and trying to get more Bible passages uh, before the people, sometimes the three-year series doesn't do quite as good a job as the one-year series. And I think that's pretty good observation. Uh, if you know Pastor Russert, he is uh, he's a man of few words, but when he speaks, he usually speaks great wisdom. And so uh, thanks be to God for that. Uh, I have uh, I've been working, working my way through this uh, study that uh, Pastor John A. Fromm has put together, the Divine Service, its history and theology. At some point in time, we're going to be using this as a Sunday morning Bible study here at Good Shepherd. That might be a year or two down the line, though. But he has this to say with regard to a general statement of the readings from Holy Scripture and lectionaries. And, Pastor, I want your reflection and reaction to this. The readings from Holy Scripture follow one of two lectionaries in our church, the one-year historic lectionary or the three-year lectionary. Each lectionary has its own benefits and weaknesses. The one-year lectionary has the longest lineage and has many theological and liturgical resources from earlier church fathers and musicians, and it has the catechetical value of repeating the same readings year after year. It is the lectionary referenced in our Lutheran confessions. The three-year lectionary is much more recent in its development, but offers the opportunity for more more variety of Scripture over the course of its three-year rotation. One may find both of these lectionaries in use in the LCMS. Regardless of which lectionary is used, The discipline of submitting to a lectionary helps the pastor and the church to teach the whole counsel of God over the course of the year, gives variety and depth to the observance of the church year calendar, and protects the congregation from the pastor merely preaching on favorite topics or themes. The pastor does have the opportunity to choose which of the readings he might preach on, though the gospel is normally expected as the favored reading. It is the tradition. When there are midweek Advent or Lenten services, there is no designed lectionary system to those services, so these take special planning, with the exception of Ash Wednesday. There are also readings provided for special major and minor festivals and other holy days and commemorations in the church year. These are usually provided in the hymnal or other companion volumes to the hymnal, such as the altar book, lectionary books, 
Depending on which lectionary is followed, certain customs and variations of the church year may be expressed differently. For example, the Sundays after the Trinity versus the Sundays after Pentecost, a pre-Lenten season in addition to Epiphany, etc. Okay, this is kind of the general overarching thing. What I want to focus on here, Pastor, and uh, you, you know, you're free to comment on anything that he said, but what I want to focus on is uh, Pastor Fromm's comment here with regard to the discipline for the pastor with regard to committing himself to a lectionary system of readings and how this is a protection for the pastor and a protection against the pastor all at the same time. Your thoughts on that? That's uh, He's very blunt yeah. with regard to the importance of using a lectionary system, quite frankly, any lectionary system. And he's right. Um, it forces the pastor to not preach about what he wants to hear or say uh, or what the people want to hear, but rather to preach on things that are difficult. Uh, There's texts that come up every year, and the pastor says, why am I preaching on this? It's really difficult to figure out how to bring across this particular scripture lesson to the hearers. Um, But there's a reason that it's in the Bible, and so there's a reason that we ought to preach on it. Contrast that with those who pick their readings each week. Oftentimes what you end up with are, Ten weeks in a row where you hear about a random topic, say leadership, and uh, the pastor preaches about leadership for ten weeks, and then the next ten weeks uh, maybe he preaches about discipleship, uh, and so now you've taken half the year to preach about these two topics, and you haven't focused on baptism, the end times, uh, sin, repentance, um, the Lord's Supper, the way that God provides. Uh, you haven't talked about the theology of the Trinity. You haven't talked about the theology of how the Holy Spirit works uh, or the church and how it exists or is called into uh, existence. You haven't talked about angels. You haven't talked about um, about a thousand different doctrines that you're forced to talk about when you use a lectionary system. And so as a person sitting in the pew, when your pastor's using the lectionary, you can be sure that he's being forced to talk about the entire counsel of what God is saying in his word um, and uh, the entire counsel of how the church through the lectionary in the past and in the history of the church uh, has forced pastors to talk about all the theology and not just choose a few things. And, And when a pastor chooses what he's going to preach on as well, he's going to choose things that he thinks his people want to hear. Uh, And he might not tell people things they don't want to hear. For example, he might not tell them that they're sinful people. He might not tell them um, about controversial issues, for example, closed communion or abortion, things like that. He'll tell them what they want to hear, and that's not always beneficial for the person sitting in the pew, just like it's not always beneficial for your child to give them what they want. Sometimes you don't give them what they want. Sometimes you make them do things they don't want to, and that's for the benefit of the child. And the same thing is happening with the way the readings are brought into the church service. I uh, I get a kick out of uh, uh, you know pastors that have their particular hobby horse, and uh, you know in the Missouri Synod sometimes that hobby horse is like mission and outreach, and so every sermon 
is about mission and outreach, and it may or may not connect us to the cross and empty tomb. Uh, usually it's a guilt trip kind of a thing. You better go out and tell your neighbor about Jesus. And uh, it, it's very disappointing when we, when we get fall into that trap. I know of other pastors that uh, their church, they spend a lot of time trying to be clever and they've got to look up some theme like, okay, now it's summertime in Nebraska. So let's, uh, uh, help road signs. We'll have a theme called under construction. And uh, uh, what are all the different road signs that are out there? Stop, yield, no passing, one way. And then they'll come up with a sermon, catchy sermon title and a Bible verse that might match it or might not. And in so trying to be so clever, Sometimes we lose preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, uh, Pastor, what I what, what I want to uh, when we come back from our break, what I want to ask you is, you did not grow up Lutheran, and you grew up in a church that did not use the liturgy like we're talking about. They they use something some kind of a liturgical uh, order, but uh, what was your experience growing up? Uh, in a non-Lutheran, non-liturgical church with regard to how the readings were picked and where did they come from? Do you know that or whatever? That's what I want to start with when we come back from our break. And then we'll talk about the first reading that we have in our structure is the Old Testament reading. Some people might say that's backwards. We'll check that out when we come back. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. Don't change that dial. We'll be back in just a minute. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Alleluia, you have the words of eternal life. The Alleluia verse from Divine Service Setting 1 in the non-Lenten time. Uh, Familiar words, people know that by heart. It uh, kind of sets apart the gospel reading from all the other readings. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. I uh, left the uh, listeners with a uh, question as well as leaving Pastor Moline a question. Again, this is at home in your hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're working our way through Divine Service Setting 1. We are to the readings of the church, and if you're following, following along in your hymnal, page 156 and 157. Pastor, uh, what are your recollections of growing up in a uh, non-Lutheran and, for the most part, non-liturgical church with regard to the readings? Do you know where they came from or how they were selected, that they follow the generic um, Protestant uh, series of readings that came about after Vatican II, or did they do something different? Well, um, the readings and the the liturgy in the Disciples of Christ Church that I went to, at that time, the Disciples of Christ was still more of a liturgical liberal church, and so they had a liturgy. They didn't really know why, and they didn't know what its purpose was. The readings themselves were more selected um, 
generally by the pastor to fit in with whatever theme he was preaching on that week. And that varied a little bit pastor to pastor. Uh, Our first pastor, Tom Osborne, I think, uh, he did more of the the worship service according to, uh, I think he matched more with a three-year lectionary. Uh, Later pastors then, I think, did more themes. I can remember uh, talking about sermons where it was about riding your bike in the mountains and seeing the sunrise or the sunset and how did that make you feel. And so I can't recall what all those scripture readings were because they don't really fit into anything that scripture really talks about. It was more about what what's your emotional state? Uh, how do your emotions define how you interpret something the scripture might says and just by having that way to interpret scripture how do you feel you're automatically going to focus on some particular scriptures and not other ones because the goal is to make you feel good about who you are and how you're living your life and there are some scriptures that lend themselves to that better than others that tell you you're a sinner and you need God to forgive you your sin and so just by the theology and the way that scripture lessons are picked, it defined what scripture readings were used in that church body. It's pretty hard to make the jump from riding your bicycle in the mountain and watching the sunrise or sunset to the death and resurrection of Jesus for you for the forgiveness of sins. So you can see why that's kind of a big leap and why some churches that are more focused on either reason or emotion or feelings sometimes don't quite get around to Jesus. It's very sad, but it's very real. And, you know, in this day and age where you can get on the computer, the Internet, social media, you can listen to pretty much any church, any sermon, any pastor throughout the world and uh, check it out. We're, we're not making this stuff up. This is, this is the reality that is out there. And it's been in the Lutheran church, too. There was a time where many Lutheran sermons would be about things very practical, like how do you plant your potatoes to get the best yield? And so even in our own church body, Lutheranism as a, a wide picture there, not necessarily the Missouri Synod, we've had to repent of our preaching not about Christ and reading scripture lessons not about Christ. And that's part of how the Missouri Synod comes into existence is let's return to actually what's really important, which is Christ and his word and focusing on that. And I think that's a, that's a very valid point that you bring out. You know, the, uh, the Orthodox Church, and I'm not talking about big O Orthodox, but small O, right teaching church, is constantly <clears throat> battling uh, on one side pietism, which is all about feelings, and on the other side, rationalism, which is all about making things fit. It's got to be reasonable. And so it's easy to fall into one ditch or the other, and having a set of readings established for you helps you. doesn't doesn't completely prevent it because we're sinners, but it helps you to stay out of the error on either side of uh, the ditch, which would be pietism and rationalism, and there's a there's a whole rich history of Lutheranism that goes all the way back to the very beginning in that. I want to talk now about the structure of how the readings are about. And if you look on page 156 of LSB, it says Old Testament or first reading, psalm or gradual, epistle or second reading, alleluia and verse, and we've been hearing the alleluia, and then the Holy Gospel. So, the structure of the readings, Pastor, 
starting with the Old Testament and then having a little interlude there with the psalm or gradual, then having the epistle and then having a little interlude there with the alleluia, and then the gospel. I suppose some people might say that the gospel should come first because that's the most important. Uh, A few thoughts about the structure and why we have an Old Testament, an epistle, and a gospel, three specific readings assigned for every Sunday or major festival in the church year. Well, yeah, uh, maybe I'll start with the the last one first. Why do we have these particular three readings? And then I can talk about why they're in the order that they're in. The reason we have these three readings is that that kind of covers all the different parts of what Scripture are. And maybe it's not being fair to the Old Testament because there are multiple parts in the Old Testament. There's the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books. There's the uh, other writings, and then there's also the prophets. Um, and and we do have the other writings in the sense that we have Psalm and Gradual, and also the verse oftentimes comes from that as well. Um, and so that's covered with that. We have the Old Testament, which is um, both the Pentateuch and the other writings from the Old Testament. Uh, it does occasionally have prophets in there as well, but not as often as maybe some of the other parts of Scripture. Uh, and so we have Old Testament covered. We have the Epistle, which would be basically that can be any part of the New Testament that's not a gospel. So it can come from Revelation occasionally. It can come from usually Paul or Peter or John. Um, but it can cover all the bases in that regard. And when we hear second reading, that's when it's not one of the specific letters Correct. or epistle. Like if it comes from the book of Revelation or the Acts of the Apostles. Correct. And I think there's um, occasions too when one of those might also fall into the first reading slot on some it's, festivals. It's and rare things. in the one-year series. It's quite common in the three-year series. So, um, so we have that. We have epistles, which would be any other part of the New Testament, essentially, except for the gospel. And then we also have the gospel, which is the most important part because that's where Christ is being revealed and who, what he is and what he does. Uh, and so we have one of those each week. And, and that way we're covering all the different parts of God's word, scripture, uh, that are proclaimed. And they're usually together because they're all teaching the same thing. Uh, and so we find an Old Testament that teaches the same thing that the gospel is. And we find an epistle lesson that's teaching the same thing the gospel is. Now, we put them in this particular order because um, the one that is most important to us is that gospel lesson. In fact, that's part of our reverent uh, worship is that we stand up for the reading of the gospel, uh, being glad to hear God's word and out of respect and honor for who Jesus is. We also have the Alleluia and the verse that we sing before that, and uh, also then it changes our response. We say, this is the gospel according to... Uh, this is the gospel of our Lord, and we reply, praise to you, O Christ. We have that uh, choral interlude on either side. So that's giving uh, honor and respect to the most important of the readings, which is the gospel lesson. And for that reason, it also comes last, because that's the one that the sermon is going to be based on. That's the one that's most important. And so we save that so that we can see how all of them ultimately lead and flow into that particular scripture lesson. The Old Testament and the epistle then, we do them in that order because that's the order they appear in the the scripture lessons, uh, knowing then that the gospel is the most important of them. So we we have this rhythm and flow, we have this structure back and forth, and uh, while the gospel reading is most often preached on, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the sermon part, uh, even when the pastor decides to preach on one of the other readings, the Old Testament, 
the epistle, the gradual, the psalm of the day, the introit, whatever, that gospel reading is still driving the theme for all of the other readings. And, and I was told years ago that when the lectionaries were put together that the gospel was chosen first and then all the other readings were chosen to, to match or to correlate yep. in some way, shape, or form with that theme. So in that respect, even if the gospel is not being preached on, it is still driving the car with regard to right. the, the, the theme of the day and uh, the message of the day and all that kind of stuff. I want to point out, too, then, we have psalms already that we've sung in the intro it, and then the gradual and the verse oftentimes uh, reflect a psalm as well. And so we also have that part of the scripture that are a part of the service, even if they don't fit perfectly into these three uh, categories at this time. Now, we are free. Well, we don't have to bind ourselves to a lectionary system. We don't have to do any of this stuff. What God's Word tells us, though, is the importance of reading the Scriptures in the divine service. First Timothy 4.13, Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to comforting, to the teaching activity. And so God is directing not only Timothy through Paul, but all Christian churches and all pastors who fall in the line of Timothy, and that's every Christian pastor, to have a prominent part of the worship service be the public reading of Scripture. And so this is not an option with regard to reading the Scriptures in public and then teaching and expounding upon those Scriptures. Exactly what uh, form or order we use, uh, we're free in that respect. Now, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we have voluntarily given up some of that freedom, and we have said that we are going to follow and use the worship uh, resources that we have and that we're going to follow. We're going to use a hymnal. We're going to use an agenda. We're going to use one of these two sets of readings. Again, Pastor, in the time that we have left, why is that important for both preacher and hearer? Well, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And there's there's the important thing to keep in mind. What are the benefits of us having a, a uniform scripture lesson and reading across the bounds? What's the benefit of us having a liturgy across the board? And, and that is that um, even if I am in North Carolina, I have the opportunity to hear the peace of God's word appointed for that particular day at the church in North Carolina instead of North Nebraska. And that allows me then to continue on and hearing all the different parts of God's Word without missing a section. Um, it's also beneficial for your pastor who can read preachers that are actually good preachers um, throughout all the history of the church, all the way back from uh, St. John Chrysostom and, and John of Damascus to Luther to Walther to um, even uh, some of the ancient preachers as well. We have an opportunity to see what they said about a particular text and bring that into our preaching uh, here and now so that we're making sure that the church has one united voice in the way that it handles all of these particular scripture lessons. We set aside our freedom then for the benefit of the hearer so that that hearer can hear all the different parts of God's word no matter where they are and when they are there. And that's a blessing for the church 
at large. And we believe, teach, and confess that there is power in the Word of God to both convict, convict the hearer of their sin and to convert the hearer with faith to believe the gospel, the good news that Christ has bled and died for them. And that is the ultimate one voice from all 66 books of the Holy Scripture. We need to take a break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the specifics with regard to the Old Testament reading, the epistle reading, and the gospel reading. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. This week's church service is more than hymns and a sermon. Get a more in-depth study of this week's message with Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline on Proclaiming the One. Tune in Sundays at 12 p.m., Wednesdays at 11 a.m., Fridays at 11 a.m. and again at 6 p.m., and Saturdays at 10 a.m. For past episodes on demand, go to thecross957.org backslash Proclaiming the One. Welcome back to At Home in your hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're working our way through Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book. If you've got your hymnal open, we're on page 156 and 157. We're looking at the readings in the Divine Service. Uh, this is episode 20, and uh, we've already talked in an earlier episode about the whole one-year, three-year lectionary debate, and so we're not going to uh, beat that uh, any more than we already have. But in uh, Pastor Fromm's uh, Bible study on the divine service, he says this about the readings in general. Whereas the synagogue service would have started with the most important or foundational reading first, in the Christian order, the Holy Gospel comes as the fulfillment and center, so therefore last. The synagogue service was looking forward with a continuity of teaching, and the New Testament order reflects a fulfillment in Christ, who is among us in the divine service and who will appear again in glory on the last day. In our lectionaries, there is often a strong prophecy-slash-fulfillment correspondence, between the Old Testament reading and the Holy Gospel text, with the epistle serving as either a commentary or as a churchly application. I think that's a pretty fair summary, don't you, Pastor? Yeah, I think so. I think it, uh, you know, when you're thinking off the top of your head, it's harder to put things concisely, and I think that does a good job of saying what we were saying earlier. Yes. Uh, specifically, now we want to talk about the Old Testament reading and uh you know, I'm surprised at the variety. Uh, I mean, the Old Testament is such a large corpus of Scripture, 39 books. Some of the books are extremely long. And I'm uh, often surprised at how well the lectionary series does, both the one-year and the three-year, of giving us that whole counsel of God and giving us a good picture of the different parts of the Old Testament pointing us to Christ. Uh, Pastor Fromm says this about the Old Testament reading. The Old Testament reading comes first as it is the oldest and gives the first word of God out of which the others come in fulfillment and application of God's law and gospel. Sometimes, instead of an Old Testament reading, a reading from the book of Acts is provided, for instance, during the Easter season. 
The use of an Old Testament reading, while not always done in the history of the church, provides a connection to the fact that there is one God who is the triune God, and he is the God of both the Old and the New Testaments. To say Jesus is Lord is not only to identify him as God, but it is also to identify him as Yahweh, the great I Am, the true God of the Old Testament as well. This use of the Old Testament also declares that God is the God of both law and gospel, which are both taught in both Testaments, and that there is unity of the entire Bible by virtue of the Holy Spirit serving as the ultimate author behind both the prophets and the apostles. Now, there's a lot here in that little paragraph by Pastor Fromm in the book. Um, By including an Old Testament reading, Pastor Fromm is submitting that what we are saying is that there is only one God, and that is the triune God, and that is the God of both Old Testament and New Testament. Pastor? I think that's important for us to remember because there are those in the church today, and I'm talking the wider church, who want to say the new covenant erases the old covenant and that they are completely separate and unconnected. And I think Pastor Fromm's point is important. There is only one God, and therefore the God that's doing the work in the Old Testament is the same God that's doing the work in the New Testament. And that God we know from both Testaments is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and holy, holy, holy. And he is promising to save us through the personal work of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. And so by having both of those together, we can see how these all run together. And there's really one promise that's throughout all the pages of Scripture that's important and how it finds its fulfillment in Christ. He he also takes the next step then to piggyback on what you just said. Not only by including the Old Testament reading do we make a statement that there is only one God, triune God, of both Old Testament and New Testament, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. He is the great I Am. He is the Messiah. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. And he is the same one who took on flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us and went to the cross. That simply by including an Old Testament reading, we are making that statement in the unity of Christ as the main character in both Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus says that himself very clearly. You search the Old Testament thinking that by it you have eternal life, and yet these are they that testify about me. And that's the truth, and that's the reality. There is one message of Scripture, God saves sinners through Jesus. The third point that Pastor Fromm makes here is that by including an Old Testament reading, we have a statement that we believe that there is one author, God the Holy Spirit, of all 66 books of the Bible. And in that respect, we are not going to pit one part of Scripture against another part of Scripture or one author against another author because there is one divine author. Your reaction to that, Pastor? Well, that's uh, also the same thing that Scripture teaches as well. We have several places uh, where it says that uh, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to record the things that are in Scripture. We have the teaching that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking the the man of God. Uh, We have these ideas contained within Scripture, and so when we make that good confession, um, that's beneficial to the congregation. I think that's, again, teaching us why... 
having a united worship service is so important. Every single thing we do from beginning to end in church on a Sunday morning is to teach us about Christ uh, and who God is and how he saved us in Christ. And so even little things like this, which we probably glance over and don't care about or think about too often, ultimately are put that way to teach us about Christ. And how amazing is it that the people of old who put these liturgies together were smart enough to know their scripture well enough uh, to do these things and uh, to put together worship services in such a way. And I'll be real honest, you and I are not capable enough to do the same thing that they did. And so who are we to think we could do a better job in what we're doing? And I don't mean that to put us down. Uh, It's just uh, these are the best and brightest thinkers of some of all time put together these worship services in such a way so that every single little thing teaches us about Jesus. And the wisdom of the ages throughout all the centuries of the church coming together, and uh, we're seeing that in the structure of how these things are laid out. It, uh, it shocks and saddens me that in churches that sometimes want to be a little bit more hip or contemporary or whatever, that one of the things that they do is they reduce the length of the service by omitting the readings from God's Word. And almost the first reading to go is the Old Testament reading. Now, maybe the psalm, the introit certainly, or the gradual, but the Old Testament is almost given a secondary status that it really isn't as important as the New Testament or certainly as the Gospels. And sometimes there is very, very little actual scripture that is read in the service. And we are really, really shortchanging the people of God. God's word says that his word is the power of God unto salvation. His word will not return void. His word will not fade or perish like the grass of the field. And so to have the word of God read, expounded, prominently in our divine service is for the sake and for the life of the people. So if you're taking um, one of the scripture lessons out, what does that say about your confession of faith, about who God is? I mean, that's really what it is ultimately, right? A confession of faith that God is not wise enough or powerful enough to make known the same message uh, to all his people in the Old Testament times as well as he did in the New Testament times, that God had to change his message halfway through or that uh, he got much better at his uh, proclaiming the reality of Jesus in the New Testament so the Old Testament is void and empty. That's a bad confession of the reality and identity of God. In uh, in the words of Pastor Kuhlman, who likes to say that we, humans, often think that we have better words than God. And I think this would just be one example or one manifestation of that kind of a feeling. Even though you might not say it that way, that's really what it's teaching. Everything you do confesses whether you mean to say something or not. Uh, and that's where the troubles come about is when we accidentally confess something we don't mean And that then becomes the rule and the norm for the entire church. Amen. Amen. In the uh, time that we have left in this segment, I want to talk about the gradual. The gradual is that little snippet of Scripture, generally from the Psalms, that is between the Old Testament reading and the epistle reading. The gradual is sometimes skipped. Uh, There's uh, certain parts of the church here when when there is no gradual, like the season of Easter. But uh, these are the words from uh, Pastor Fromm. What in the world is a gradual? 
The gradual is somewhat of a remnant of an earlier practice that in most places has dissipated because of changes in church architecture. Like the introit, the gradual was originally a time of movement in the chancel. And then he quotes from Burnell Eckhart in his book, A Layman's Guide to the Liturgy, 2005, the gradual, which consists in the chanting of a psalm or a part thereof, is so-called because there was formerly a step called the gradine or gradus on which the reader stood to chant the psalm following the first reading or epistle. Traditionally, there have been four parts of the Mass sung by the choir, introit, gradual, offertory, and communion. Unlike these other three, the gradual did not arise from the desire or need to fill up time during which something else was being done in the Mass, but is probably as old as the readings themselves. The idea of interspersing a psalm or psalms with the readings appointed for the day is a practice carried over from the synagogue. The insertion of a psalm between the readings helps to provide a stream of faith's language or mindset or zone of thought springing primarily from the Psalter, in the midst of which the readings are heard. What do you think about that definition and explanation for the gradual pastor? Well, I think that's important for us to hear and to understand. We don't just worship in a vacuum. As we say in the divine service, we worship with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We aren't really standing on our own feet on the ground to try and come up with what happens in the Christian church. We're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. In fact, ultimately, you could say we're standing on the shoulders of the apostles who saw Christ and uh, uh, set forth the way the church operates. And so it's important to know why we do the things we do and where they came from so that we can continue to stand on those shoulders and to have the richness and the depth uh, of what we're doing in church because ultimately it all reflects our reverence towards who God is and how he operates. And that's a very important thing. We can't just take God for granted and think this is ours to do what we want or this is what I prefer when God is very clear and has given us such a a rich depth uh, in what we do in the divine service. And all of that depth is designed to give us Jesus, which is truly amazing when you consider that. Yes, and I'm often shocked at how well the gradual, just that little snippet from the Psalms, really summarizes everything that's going on in the worship service. We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the New Testament readings in the Divine Service, the Epistle and the Gospel. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, 
Pastor Moline. We're looking at the structure of divine service. We're specifically looking at divine service setting one, page 156 and 157 in LSB. We're looking at the readings. And in our discussion of the readings, we are right smack dab in the middle, and I'm going to suggest that we skip our discussion of the epistle reading, even though it comes next in the structure, that we skip our discussion of the epistle reading and take up the Holy Gospel and the ceremonies that are around the Holy Gospel. Uh, You've already talked about why we stand for the reading of the Holy Gospel in the divine service. It's out of respect for the words of Christ. We've been hearing at the beginning and the end for our bumper music today that very familiar Alleluia from Divine Service Setting One. And the gospel is the primary reading in the worship service for the day. It's kind of what drives everything else. The the hymn of the day is based on the gospel. All these things are coming from this gospel. And I wanna wanna devote this segment to that gospel reading. Uh, Pastor Fromm says it this way. The focal point of Scripture comes last among the three readings in the divine service. In that respect, while all Scripture is inspired, errorless in the Word of God, Scripture is not flat. All the Scriptures point to Christ and His work as Savior. That is why special ceremony is associated with the reading of the Holy Gospel text appointed for the day. Usually, we sing Alleluia before the reading of the Holy Gospel, since Alleluia comes from the Hebrew language and means praise the Lord or praise Yahweh. Hallelujah and Amen are two Hebrew words that have carried over into the New Testament usage through Greek. Of course, in the earliest times of the church, the congregation would have been standing for the entire service, apart from the elder, the ill, or the elderly, the ill, or pregnant women who sat on benches. So something in addition to standing for the gospel was called for to recognize the proclamation of Christ in his visible ministry. What do you think about that, Pastor? Well, it's the truth. And um, in the in the medieval uh, cathedrals and things like that, they didn't have pews back in the old days. So you did stand for the entire service. And just to kind of put that in perspective for our listeners, the sermons were much, much longer as well. And the services were much, much longer, probably several hours, not just uh, the one hour that we shoot for in our modern day. And uh, so to get together and to stand for the whole church service is important. Um, Just consider that you don't have to do that now. We have nice cushy pews for our our sermons. At the same time, it does uh, have more ceremony to show its importance. And so oftentimes the gospel is proclaimed from in the midst of the people to represent to us how... Christ came down and took on our human flesh and lived in the midst of us. And so we have sometimes, uh, for feast days and things like that, a gospel processional where the pastor brings God's word into the midst of people, usually with a uh, a, uh, crucifix as well, leading the way to show this is what we're really talking about is Jesus, not uh, this fancy book or anything like that. The gospel's read then in that way with the singing of the Alleluia's before and then also... um, singing on the way back to the front of the church for the rest of the service. It's covering the movement again for that gospel being brought out there. And it's emphasized as most important in the service through these fancy uh, things, as Pastor Fromm said. Okay. Uh, Professor Art Just, in his commentary on the divine service, uh, talks about the gospel reading this way. In our congregations, we acknowledge this climactic moment 
the reading of the Holy Gospel, by singing the Alleluia, or what Luther called the perpetual voice of the church, and we rise to our feet. On festival days, the climactic character of the reading of the Holy Gospel may be honored by a gospel procession where the book of the gospel is brought down into the midst of the people, showing how Christ abides among them in both his divine and human natures. In our ears, we hear his words of grace. We greet the gospel reading with an acclamation, Glory to you, O Lord, and acknowledge its conclusion with Praise to you, O Christ showing once again that it is the very words of Jesus that now bring us into the highest point of worship. We would do well in our congregations to teach our children and catechumens to recognize the climactic character of the gospel and to carry out our liturgies in such a way that the gospel is experienced by the congregation as climactic. What do you think about that? A lot of, a lot of drama there in uh, Professor Just's words. Uh, is, that, is that bravado, or is there really some substance besides what he's teaching us? There, there is substance because you do the things that are most important most carefully. Um, and this isn't just in church. This is in everything. If you're, if you're building a model, uh, you do the part that's going to be seen more carefully than you do the part that's not going to be seen. If you are um, chopping down a tree, you carefully plan where the tree is going to land. You don't just swing with an axe randomly. The things that are important, you put effort and time into. And what's more important than hearing the gospel? And, and it's worth mentioning maybe, too, uh, in the old days, the gospel was sung with the idea that Having music attached to God's Word also helps it be recorded in our brain so it reminds us and we can remember it. Um, maybe you've been to a nursing home and uh, seen somebody who's had a stroke and can no longer talk, and yet when you do the liturgy and you sing a hymn, they can sing right along with you uh, even though they're unable to speak. The reason that happens is is separate halves of your brain record each part. Uh, you're speaking part of your brain is on one side and your singing part is on the other side. So when you sing God's word, it gets recorded in both parts and therefore is easier to remember and can be remembered even after injury later. And so singing the gospel was also done in the old days uh, and the other parts of the liturgy, that's part of why we sing them as well. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in the classical model of education, which we use in our school and preschool and catech uh, catechesis here at Good Shepherd, the uh, the memorization of lists oftentimes is put to music. And uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing that as we remember, we're remembering more fully or more completely when we sing something rather than just speaking it. And I think that is a, that's a great reminder and a great uh, uh, encouragement or maybe even advertisement for the classical model of education and why we do what we do. This is this is not some haphazard thing. I know uh, some people grew up with chanting. Other people didn't grow up with chanting. There's usually an anti-chanting crowd in every church. But there is a reason why, especially with the uh, catechumens that I teach, when I ask them, uh, what are the words of institution? Most of the time they'll say, well, can we sing them? It's easier to remember if we sing them rather than if we just say it. And uh, I just I wish some of our members could hear how much the kids appreciate the sung 
part of the liturgy uh, in addition to just the words, but to the music and the melody that goes with it. I know this is tangential, and so you just have to stop me. Kids learn faster than any other people do. Their brains are learning more and more every single day for the first 10 years of their life. And they learn better singing. Sometimes I think it's sad that the things that we actually teach them to sing then are the most shallow uh, theological works that we have. And I'm not putting them down. Uh, they're they're church, church hymns and songs that we have. But it's the time when we have the opportunity to teach them the really difficult, deep uh, hymns that maybe are even hard to sing because they'll learn them that much better because their brains are in learning mode. And even if they don't understand all the words, later on, those definitions for those words, they'll be taught in school, and that hymn that they memorized and learned and is recorded in their brain forever that had deep theological meaning when they were a child will always be there with them. And that's the classical model as well. We're not so concerned that someone knows all the deep meaning. We just want them to learn the grammar of that particular topic. Later on, we'll teach them what that grammar means, the the logic behind it. And then later on, we'll teach them how to defend it with the rhetoric. And so that classical model works in any topic, any subject, especially what we're talking about here. The uh, the point that uh, Pastor Fromm makes here with regard to the gospel is one that I had not considered before. Now, the sanctuary at Good Shepherd faces the east, and this is the traditional way for sanctuaries to face. I wish I could say that uh, Pastor Poppy theologically demanded that the new sanctuary 15 years ago be built facing the east uh, for theological purposes. Uh, The only reason it faces the east is because we border 40th Street, and that was the only direction we could go. Uh, So there was no hidden meaning or agenda there, but it is the traditional way, and there was a theological thought behind it. When it was more universal that by custom church buildings were positioned to face east. The Holy Gospel procession represented the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem out into the world. Now, regardless which way the direction of the sanctuary faces, one can say at least that the Holy Gospel procession is a movement of the word of Christ out into the world, out into the midst of the people. Note the following description of this procession, uh, and uh, this is a, uh, the manual on the liturgy that I've referred to before. On festivals, a gospel procession is appropriate so that the gospel is read in the midst of the congregation. The reader should be accompanied by someone to carry or hold the book and by two torchbearers. The procession is an acknowledgment of the presence of Christ in the reading. When there is a gospel procession, an instrumental introduction of the form in the form of modest fanfare may introduce the singing of the first acclamation. I'm thinking uh, when we talked about the procession at the beginning of the service, and you used your Star Wars illustration about how uh, the victorious people were marching in, and if they don't have music, that's pretty boring and Uh, meaningless. Mm -hmm. But when the music is attached to it and the fanfare and the celebration, it just builds and builds and builds and builds. Your thoughts on these words? 
And that's exactly the truth. All the things where we sing, where people are moving, uh, or even the uh, canticles that we sing, they're designed to keep people's attention focused where it needs to be, uh, and that's on God's Word. It's not like in the old days when they invented the liturgy, people were different and not sinful, and they wouldn't doze off or count the number of columns in the sanctuary or the ceiling fans, how many times they turned around in a a second or whatever. They did. They were sinful people just like us. And so what do we do? We do these things that keep their attention uh, by singing, um, by um, candles and things like that, and that's for their benefit so they stay in the faith. And the center of the gospel reading, as well as all of the readings, is the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, for me, for the life of the world. Let us never lose sight of the fact that the Word made flesh is the Word that is read and the Word that is proclaimed among us and is the heart, core, soul, and center of our worship life. We need to bring this episode of At Home in Your Hymnal to a close. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out on our archives, www.thecross957.org. God's richest blessings in Christ.